Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the only place to hear cutting-edge climate tech founders pitch their businesses in real time and on a podcast. I'm Nick Van Osdal. Let's jump in. Hi there, and welcome to a special episode of the Keep Cool Show. In the first season of the show, we hosted a pitch competition for climate tech companies. It was my first foray into podcasting, so I super appreciate any of you who tuned in. In the next season, we're going to continue interviewing founders, leaders, and operators at stellar climate tech companies. You can expect us to resume our weekly cadence with those interviews in June. Before then, we wanted to release this podcast as a special episode. Why? For one, I want to continue to share fascinating conversations in which I learn a lot with you while we work behind the scenes on the second full season of the show. Secondly, one of the questions I get asked the most by readers of my newsletter is, what can I, as an individual, do to drive positive impact and help reverse climate change? My guest on this episode, Zach Stein, has answers. Zach is the CEO and co-founder of Carbon Collective, a company that helps individual investors to not just invest more sustainably, but to drive positive climate impact with their investments as well. My top takeaways from this episode included the following. For one, traditional finance and traditional investment theory aren't explicitly built to drive climate or environmental impact. As the world reckons with climate change, however, that will have to change. And that's where Carbon Collective is focusing its efforts. Secondly, Zach and I spent a lot of time discussing how narratives in markets and investing are incredibly powerful. Driving positive climate impact will be a massive narrative and movement in coming decades. As such, it represents a real opportunity to drive results for the earth and returns for investors. It was also interesting to get Zach's perspective on a highly debated topic in the investment community namely whether it's better to engage with companies who are responsible for significant emissions, like oil and gas companies, or to divest from them entirely. Which of these approaches drives more impact? Beyond that, Zach and I take digressions into everything from the coal industry to nuclear power. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. Let's hop to it. All right, Zach, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. Stoked to have you. So glad to be here. Thanks so much, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. So get us up to speed on Carbon Collective. Take us from zero to one. I know a little bit about the business and what y'all have been working on, but I don't think everyone that's listening will. So would love to get that from you. Totally. So we started uh, Carbon Collective. My co-founder and I know each other since we were four years old. And we started Carbon Collective because we were looking to invest ourselves And we also interviewed a bunch of people, 120 people, and found that for those like us who are deeply concerned about climate change, who see this as the challenge of our time. I really like the language that you used in our last conversation where you said (laughs) the climate anvil dropped and hit you on the head. Uh, (laughs) I think that that's really clear that what Wall Street is offering in terms of things for our retirement and things like that is just simply not aligned with the climate transition. Right. Because when we zoom out, we know what we have to do. We have to dramatically wind down investments in fossil fuels and dramatically wind up investments in climate solutions. And if we don't do that, it doesn't matter how many trees we plant or how many direct air capture machines we get up and running. We just aren't going to be able to avoid escalating climate change into a very chaotic world. 
So we wanted to build uh, an offering where people like you and me could invest in ways that made sense first from an investment perspective. So it's broadly diversified with low fees, the same as what you're going to pay for other online investment platforms, but it has a clear theory of change of why it's in there because we can't solve climate change without investment, but investing also isn't charity. (laughs) And so we have to come in and meet those together. So we have uh, services both for individuals on our robo advisor. So if you have an IRA or old 401k or something like that, we could help you out with that. We're real people get like a personalized (laughs) welcome video and you, you come, we're pretty friendly. Uh, And then also if you uh, work at a mission aligned company. We also offer 401k services because we found a lot of our founder friends, they were looking around for their first 401k plan and saw that, hey, every option here invests in fossil fuel companies. And that's like pretty counter to our mission. So we do both of those. Very cool. Yeah, I am. I definitely sympathize with kind of the impulse that you all felt when you when it sounds like you went to start Carbon Collective, which is active investor. I've always enjoyed markets and thinking about you know, how to allocate my own capital, but never really felt like there was an easy entry point to make much, makes more sustainable investing decisions easily. And I imagine that like a big part of the problem that consumers face is, you know, where do I start with this? So if I were to come to you right now and say, all right, Zach, like let's overhaul my portfolio and roll over like my 401k, like what, what are the first few steps you'd, you'd help me take? So logistically, what we'd help you do is if you wanted to roll that over to us, we'd help you open up an account with us on our brokerage platform. And then we, depending upon where that old account is located, it can be like fairly simple, just a simple electronic transfer. Mm -hmm. It could also mean we might have to get on the phone with them. We actually will do that. We'll bring you in to answer those security questions. But we find for a lot of people, there's like, ah, there's so many numbers here and I'm going to mess one up. And it's really intimidating because most (laughs) people don't like investing. It's just something they feel like they should do. Right. I think you're somewhat the exception of... Uh, especially for a lot of our members at this stage. Got it. Interesting. Um, And so that then, once that rolls over, we'll, in our onboarding process, we'll help you choose the right portfolio. We don't flood you with options. There's only a few of what you can choose. All of them are meant to be good options. And so once that's done, then you get to set and forget. Nice. I think taking a step back of like, how do you make sense of this sustainable investing space as a whole, which I think a lot of people are just trying to do, you know, fit your mouth around that jawbreaker. Right. (laughs) Um, It's a weird analogy. I don't know why I keep (laughs) using it. (laughs) Um, So it's, again, we like to use that lens of how could it be sustainable if it is not aligned with solving climate change? Right. To us, it's just, you can't square that circle without that. And so we can get in the weeds on like, you know, ESG scores and all this analytics and carbon data and and stuff like that. But really, I think it's much simpler. If a investment portfolio is not either fossil fuel free or has a strategy of uh, divesting and winding down investments in fossil fuels and those industries that are dependent upon fossil fuels, and then is not also overweighting and giving more share to the companies that are building climate solutions. Again, it's just in line with what we know we have to do. And this is comes from top scientific organizations, every single plan for solving climate change, that is the core tenant of it. And that was going to be a, the next question of mine is you're helping customers go you know, from zero to one or even zero to 100 as far as sustainable investing is concerned. But I'd be curious to hear more about how you all went from zero to one on building some of those initial portfolios and 
you just provided kind of some of the overall thesis of what they're intended to accomplish, but would love to hear a bit more about like the construction phase and all the data that intake that y'all are doing. Totally. So when we started looking at this space and people like yourself who are maybe more familiar with investing, what exists is there's like kind of two ways that Wall Street approaches us. One is ESG. And ESG is an acronym that stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And basically how it works is it, it started with institutional investors. So big pension holders would go to these data analytics companies like MSCI and say, hey, can you put together all of these data on ethical frameworks? So environmental, social, and governance for all these companies and help us build the portfolios built around that. And what that results in are portfolios that are just less bad. <laughs> than the existing world. You remove some of the worst of the worst, but we're about to come up with a big piece of content where we actually go and look at every single ESG portfolio that you can get on existing robo-advisors like Betterment, Wealthfront, et cetera. They still have plenty of fossil fuel companies in them, even the climate impact ones. I'm sure they check some sort of like governance quotient or what have you <laughs> along the line. Exactly. And that's part of the problem with ESG is that it's really opaque and there's a lot of ways for companies still to find their way in. So that's why we say it's kind of the less bad. Right. Then you could swing to the other extreme, which is like, I'm just going to invest in solar sure. or something like that. And that's just a very risky investment. It's a very narrow, you're not going to put your whole retirement fund in that. Or if you are, you're you know knowingly taking a pretty volatile ride right. in that. And so we also kind of had a third thing as we were building these portfolios, is that people have been trained, and rightfully so, that index-based investing, invest with the market with as low fees as possible, mm -hmm. is the smartest way to invest. Right. And that has just continued. I just saw an article the other day that is, I think it was 79% of actively managed mutual funds are underperforming their index. Yeah, and the same is true of a lot of even like pretty actively managed hedge, fund, hedge funds that aren't you know, save for perhaps like the most successful quant funds. Like They're not necessarily outperforming either. Exactly. So it's this that we didn't want to build anything that kind of broke those principles or try how do we stick to them as much as possible of let let the market decide with as low fees as possible. Then we said, all right, now let's look at the whole US stock market. And that's mm -hmm. what we focus on for now. Happy to get into some details of why. Um, what are the companies and the industries that are long term dependent on the use of fossil fuels for their core business? Sure. So in 20 years, their core business is still going to need fossil fuels as a key input. So obviously oil companies fall into this, but also like airlines and airline manufacturers, petrochemical companies, cement, steel, none of these companies for them to decarbonize and, and exist in a net zero world, they either need technology that is very much at, like on the lab bench right now. It is not whatsoever proven. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Definitely. Or they need to just change their business model in order to exist in that world. So we very much take a divest approach from that. Um, we definitely should talk about divest versus engagement with that because we have strong opinions there. Interesting. Yeah, that was definitely going to be on my on my question list, but I'll <laughs> let you finish here first. <laughs> Great. So we divest from that. It's about 20% of the market. And we don't want to hold them ethically. We also don't want to hold them financially. There's uh, a lot of volatility tied up as we're seeing right now with what's going on with gas prices around the world with fossil fuels. So we then give their share. So that's about 20% of the market. We then give their share to the companies that are building climate solutions. 
um, we screen the entire Russell 3000, so basically the entire stock market, and say, what is every company that is building a climate solution as identified by independent sources, such as uh, Project Drawdown? So they're not going in and seeing which company it is, but they say something like, building automation is a climate solution. So then we go and see who, which companies are doing building automation. Right. And so we add them all, again, using market-based principles, and you invest in all of them. And then we broadly hold the rest of the stock market, so that, that r- roughly 80%, not because these are environmentally friendly companies by any means, but because these are the companies who can exist in a decarbonized world. So it's upon us to use our votes to get them to go there as fast as possible. And they lend you that diversification when you're already overweighting some more climate impactful companies. Exactly. Okay, cool. Understood. Yeah, I'd love to dig in on that emphasis that y'all place on divestment because, you know, I had a good conversation with more of like a B2B company kind of operating in the ESG data reporting space last week. And they were very much of the, or at least they kind of expressed very much being in favor of more proactive investment and not necessarily divesting because you lose the opportunity to vote your shares and things like that. So would be curious to hear where y'all land on that. Yeah. So divest versus engage. Engage is exactly what you said. You should own a company, you should maybe even own the ones you more morally oppose because that gives you a position to change them. If you divest, if you sell those shares, then you're not an owner. You don't have that seat at the table. This is the argument around engagement. We believe that engagement is a really powerful tool. It's really important for that. Our question is, where should that tool be used? Mm -hmm. And we don't believe that it should be used on oil companies. A lot of people do. We do not. And the reason why is we just do not see, if we play out the logic, which I can do in a sec, we do not see how engaging a fossil fuel company is effective from a net carbon perspective. So let's take the example of ExxonMobil largest publicly traded oil company in the world. There's activist investors like Engine Number One and other groups have really been having some success of like Engine Number One. They got board members onto ExxonMobil's board that are more climate forward. Right. Okay, awesome. Is that just symbolic? We're going to see. But to us, let's play it out to the ultimate. Right. Of saying that to its Exxon- logical extreme. Yes. Those board members get ExxonMobil to leave oil it go into green energy. Okay. Does that help climate change? There'd be a couple of ways it would. One, it sparks a fire sale of oil assets. ExxonMobil puts up billboards saying, oil's a bad business to be in. Come join us in the way out. Yeah. That would be huge. Phillips is going to tank too if that happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's very unlikely to happen yeah, because it's just sure. not smart from a business perspective. You don't say my business is terrible to be in, will you buy some of it? Right. (laughs) They would very much divest from their assets quietly. Yeah, I'm sure they'd still try to sell their oil sands and oil fields and all that stuff, even if it was for pennies on the dollar and someone else would develop it. Which gets to the the second part. They would then sell it. Someone is going to buy those. And this is why the focus of engagement on supply, getting a voluntary reduction of supply just does not make sense. Oil as an industry, is incredibly responsive to demand. Mm-hmm. And we, all the history we've seen is it's going to respond to demand. Someone is going to extract it. As we see this quarter, there's plenty of conversation about, all right, well, let's ramp up that production again. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so by engaging fossil fuel companies, 
it's probably not bad, but it's a huge missed opportunity because the actual impact of it we think would be fairly negligible where we should be using that engagement energy is on the demand side. We should be getting the companies who can decarbonize to switch away from using fossil fuels. So an example of a shareholder resolution that I you know, very much like to hype would be how can we get Walmart and Target to put solar panels on all of their superstores? They're on like 20% of them today. If they did that, that'd be the equivalent of like 8 million homes of electricity being powered by solar. That is going to decrease demand for oil and gas for the next 30 years and coal. That is where we should be. We believe that we should be using our pressure. It also, we're not saying, hey, Target, go into a different business entirely. (laughs) We're just saying, yeah, add solar panels to your roof. Slightly easier conversation. Yeah, it will pay off. Like it, It's not a crazy ask to be making in the same way of saying, hey, so you know, ExxonMobil, you have a bunch of investors who are saying, we want to see better quarterly profits next quarter. And then you have these activist investors who are saying, you need to stop the thing that is delivering those quarterly profits. Right. It's an untenable position to be in. And the only way that you change it is you have to externally make oil a bad business to be in. I see that argument for sure. I think um, it definitely resonates, especially when you inject that limited time, limited resources, having easier conversations with profit-motivated companies. I guess my one attempt at the logical extreme of, you know, what we could put oil and gas companies to work for is like, there's so much infrastructure that needs to be built for electrification of everything and comprehensive climate tech revolution. Like, there's no better companies in the world at building massive infrastructure. If you could somehow get them to spend the majority of their attention focused on that, helping build, I don't know, offshore wind turbines, and that could could get interesting quickly, but that's obviously trying to move a mountain. Yeah, it's such a, I, I love that. I, again, like this is the, exactly the type of questions that I think that we need to do. I think we're so quick to be oil evil like ExxonMobil Exxon cover-up, right. we need to go fight to the enemy. And instead, kind of taking the step back of being like, all right, we very clearly know what we need to do. What is the most pragmatic way where we're going to spend the fewest resources with the highest likelihood of returns right. on that time spent? Yeah. I, so the question that I have there is, what's the best way to get an ExxonMobil to do that? You could also <laughs> argue like hydrogen infrastructure. Yeah, which, totally. You all know, they are pretty heavily investing in but blue hydrogen is dependent upon a technology that is just completely unproven of carbon capture and, and sequestration. It's many billions of dollars are going into this. And so far, it's a lot of smoke and no fire with it. And this is why I think also engaging directly with oil companies is um, they have not shown themselves to be in good faith actors for a very long time. And so that expectation... I think could be very, you could delay. And again, the opportunity cost of saying, all right, rather than trying to get oil companies to voluntarily switch their business model to, you know, using their oil platform technology to build offshore wind turbines, let's make the offshore wind turbine business great to be in and let them follow. Yeah, no, you're still, you're still winning. That was just my, uh, my last ditched attempt to, (laughs) to try to salvage something on the divestment side or on the, on the engagement side, rather, for oil and gas companies. would love to talk a bit more about the business, too, because, you know, yeah. there's a lot of companies that are building, well, maybe not a lot, but there's some companies that are building B2B solutions for things like 
better climate data from public investments uh, or better ESG or like cutting through the noise of all the different ESG ratings. But I see you all as kind of more squarely B2C and then potentially also B2B2C from like a 401k perspective. Is that kind of the way that y'all think about it as well? Correct. Correct. We think that there's a lot of amazing energy in this. And it's, we think it's also pretty important that it comes from outsiders. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give an example. I think we talked about this last time of the challenge that Wall Street is finding itself and that they're really stuck increasingly between two poles where for a long time you had people like us saying, hey, divest, divest, divest. And so they started listening. And, you know, uh, Larry Fink and BlackRock is saying, okay, like climate change is an existential threat. We need to work this into our investment theories and align them with reaching net zero by 2050. Sure. Amazing. Now, though, we're (laughs) seeing the pushback. The right is saying, F you, if you were to manage our pension fund, you got to cut this divestment talk. Interesting. Gotcha. So that is happening in the Texas Teachers Fund. And now a number of state legislatures. So this is, again, it's part of that, that what's happening in the U.S. broadly, where the left broadly, I don't like, I don't like to make broad definitions, but let's go ahead, is leveraging its cultural power, whereas the right is using its legislative power in this. And so the BlackRocks of the world are finding themselves stuck. And so uh, recently, BlackRock wrote an open letter pledging its long-term commitment to fossil fuels in response to the right. And this is part of that somewhat untenable position of they are increasingly caught in between two poles where they can really please neither, but they're going <laughs> to stri- try to stay neutral in the middle Yeah. Um, when you have to choose. You're either for solving climate change or against it. it. It is in some ways that simple. Right. Damned if I do and damned if I don't, but especially damned if you just kind of oscillate in the middle for another three decades. Exactly, exactly. And so that's when it comes to our business model and kind of getting back to your original question. And what what do we see as like, why does a carbon collective need to exist? We think that because of that dynamic that I just talked about, the investing world is still really bad at talking about climate change. Mm-hmm. And it's really bad at translating that to down to the individual level. It's often at the like maybe institutional level or like really complicated climate risk models or something like that. And I I think especially as environmentalists, we can often get in our own way. We're like, oh, we have to measure scope three emissions really closely before we do anything about it. It's like, no, this company should have 100% renewable energy. Like (laughs) like, regardless of what the scope three emissions, like they need to do that now. Right. Without knowing them to the T, we can still do things to to reduce and eliminate them. Yes, yeah. And so where, and you talked about some of these B2B providers, this comes to some of the difficulty we see with ESG, mm-hmm. which is when you as an individual are trying to invest ethically, you're trying to go on an emotional journey where you're trying to say, I have this part of my identity and I'm trying to align my savings, the capital that I have built. Right. I want it building the world that I want to retire into. And with ESG, you hit this block because you're like, huh, all right, I don't really understand what's in here. I get that it's less bad, <laughs> but I don't know wh- how this was constructed, who was constructing it, what methodologies went into it. And you actually can't because it's proprietary. The companies that make those data sets, 
they sell the data sets. Right. So they're not going to give away the cow for free. <laughs> and so you can uh, have a few drops is, of milk, maybe a few drops of milk. And so that's part of the problem. And that's what we kind of saw with Carbon Collective, why for us, transparency is so key. Mm-hmm. And in how we build our climate solutions collection, for example, we only use publicly available data and we only really use revenue in that. We use a company's last year's revenue as the best indicator of its future trajectory of is it building, is it generating more revenue from its climate solutions or more revenue from products that are dependent upon the fossil fuel industry or built specifically for it? Um, We don't use climate commitments or anything like that because talk is really cheap in this space. And so when we look at some of those other B2B platforms, we think that there's certainly a place in which it's it's a great next step forward, but it still doesn't fully complete that emotional loop of people. You want to feel like you are building something that is broader. And with that, you have to have a pretty clear North Star. That's quite intriguing to me too, that you have such a narrow you know, more narrow focus on like what data you're using to build some of these products, because even with, you know, some of these other great tools that are important and are kind of illuminating and pulling you under the hood of like all these different ESG ratings that exist and all this different sustainability data, I still feel like sometimes it's kind of hard to make decisions based off of that. So it's interesting to contrast that with like, all right, let's take the money that this company is making, compose it into key sources and then evaluate that to see what sort of impact they're having on the world. Yeah, this is again, it comes down to it. I think this has been a theme of this interview so far, which is climate change is unbelievably complicated and also really simple. (laughs) And we need to hold that simplicity because if we don't achieve it, then like we can't, like the complication won't matter. Yeah, it's such a complex system. You couldn't model it perfectly anyways, even if you had every single piece of data. It's a three-body problem. <laughs> exactly. It's all, it, it's moving. Yeah, the gravities are shifting as as things are shifting with it. Right. So yeah, and, and that's part of where we see ourselves in this is how are we also helping educate the market wholly? Mm. One piece I think that is not talked about enough in investing, and I assume your listeners maybe have some more investing background as SDU is there's a theory that um, efficient market hypothesis, mm-hmm. which is your investing decisions don't matter. <laughs> right. Because the market itself is always pricing things perfectly given all available public information, which is correct. I, th- I think that is true. But what that often doesn't account for is the how strong narrative yeah. is a part of that publicly available information. It's like a very strong narrative that's been over the past, you know, 100 years, basically, which is fossil fuels is a key part of a diversified portfolio. It is counter cyclical to the rest of the market, like largely. And so it's from a diversification perspective, it's a necessary evil, even if you think it's evil to have it. And that has just no longer been the case. Mm -hmm. I I was born in 1989. If you had divested from the S&P 500 from fossil fuels from then until now, right. you would have made more money. You would have outperformed, yeah. And this includes, what's crazy is this includes a period, a decade, where that diversification made sense. In the 2000s, the US energy index was like, it had like a 350% return. Mm-hmm. Whereas the S&P 500 was flat over that period of time. So it includes the time when the counter cyclical yeah. still <laughs> would have been 
better to divest from it. And we believe that that's only going to be more the case as we're moving forward. And similarly, the reverse has been true, where we still get this all the time, where we have clients come to us and say like, hey, I've made, they're proud of themselves. I made the decision. I'm happy to accept lower returns in order to invest (laughs) with my values. Where do I sign up? Or like, amazing, awesome to have you, but like, we kind of disagree with your base premise. Right. Ideally, you'll have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, like fifty over fifty percent of the oil that's used in the U.S. is used on r- cars and trucks. It's, it's on roads. Right. It, it happens to be that there's a much better technology that doesn't use fossil fuels that is here and scaling quickly in electric cars. So it's just hard to see where, as we project over the next few decades, even barring significant climate legislation, mm-hmm. just market forces alone, how we're going to see an increase in oil's market share yeah if anything we're gonna it seems like we're gonna see more of it eaten away just by market forces alone right. because electric cars are faster they're stronger and they require unbelievably less maintenance right than, uh, and they can drive for like four times as long right like you can drive a tesla for a million miles and as you said i think i mean i sympathize massively with the fact that narratives are a massive driving force in public markets. And I think you get a lot of reflexivity in that too, where if you start now to see this slowly percolating, burgeoning narrative of, okay, like it's becoming common knowledge that I'm not sure that oil companies are going to continue to have a strong foothold in the market in 30 years, people start front running each other and that narrative gains more strength and they start to perform even less well in the market. Yes. Yeah. And then the example I really like to look to is the US coal index. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've tracked them at all. I haven't, but I think I have a pretty, there's a chart in my mind of what that, what that price looks like over the last 20 years. From 2011 to 2020, I don't know the the exact dates, but the US coal index that was tracked by the Dow Jones, it fell 99%. Damn, that's more than over that period. More than I would have guessed. I know these things happen fast when they start happening. That's basically the crux of my point. You know, exactly, and that's where narrative comes in. Is that once it starts, they become a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, and that makes it those coal companies back. You know, before the ninety nine percent fall, it was a lot easier for those coal executives to go and get a loan from a bank or to sell more shares to investors to expand their operations. After the fall much harder to do, much more expensive. The cost of capital really matters here. And that's why it's not only change your investments, but talking about it is so critical because we it is up to us. The world only changes when enough people collectively change it. So if we were to articulate a few of the narratives that you would most like to see take hold, whether it's something that Carbon Collective promotes or even broader than that, what the uh, what do those look like? I think it would be, let's say three of them, a lot of them that we've talked about here. Um, one is as people who care about climate change, we should divest. It does okay. not make sense to engage fossil fuel companies. And we should we should spend that engagement very carefully in working on reducing demand and hype those victories when they happen. Mm-hmm. And not do like, you know, 2050 or they, it should always be near term and very concrete. Mm-hmm. It's something that the existing executive team could be held accounting for. Yeah. Not sure. like two generations. Later. <laughs> when your child is chairman of the board, I want them to do X. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. How do I side so you get off my back? <laughs> 
So that's number one. Um, I think number two is the narrative that, uh, in seriously wrestling with, just given what's like market forces, no legislation. Let's remove that entirely from the uh, equation. That could just be cream on top of this. Mm-hmm. Just for market forces, is ask yourself: Is fossil fuels a growing or a shrinking industry over the next thirty years? Mm-hmm. What's happening with coal? What's happening with oil? What's happening with natural gas? To us, it's pretty clear that coal and oil are going to be shrinking. Yeah, natural gas. Natural gas. Might, question mark. Question mark. That might be where legislation comes in. Yeah, you have a lot of folks arguing that you know this is a good way to cut emissions by forty percent compared to coal. So why don't we lean into it? And I'm not exactly sure where I land on that question. I'm definitely not pro, but uh, I can see can some. I, share a- I can see some of the argument. Yeah. Can I share a pet conspiracy theory I have you on that? certainly may. <laughs> um, so it has been documented that the fossil fuel industry has helped fund anti-nuclear campaigns. Oh, yeah. I bet. It's just, it just makes sense. Nuclear is a competitor right? Um, as a technology. I bet that oil companies, these oil, they don't often get into coal, mm-hmm. that oil companies have helped support the anti-coal campaign. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. when you drill up oil, you tend to bring up a lot of natural gas too. Yeah. And so Exxon is saying like, huh. like if we can label this as a sustainable fuel and get over this, because it's very unclear if that's the case with methane leaks. Yep. That's the biggest question mark in my mind. It now accounting for one third of rising temperatures is because of methane right. being emitted. That is really significant. I wouldn't be surprised at all either, especially because like oil companies are realizing that they also have a lot of stranded energy and natural gas that like. And, and this goes to some of the difficulty of the, again, like, you know, divestment. So ExxonMobil uh, agreed with the government of Guyana, which is a, you know, a small country on the northern coast of South America, that it was going to capture its flared emissions mm-hmm. from its offshore flaring. It hasn't. The technology hasn't worked. And so Exxon has just, they're like, all right, we'll pay the fines. And they actually negotiated the government of Guyana down to like reduce the fines by like 90%. And so it's like that, and this is again, when it comes to engaging fossil fuel companies, it's like that was an agreement with a government that had like set monetary penalties for it. As activist shareholders, we're probably not going to get that from activist investors or from, from uh, uh, fossil fuel companies. It might just be, you know, oh yeah, we'll, we'll stop flaring as much. Right. But they've shown a willingness to happily break that. Yeah. You know, uh, ask for forgiveness. (laughs) You know, if internationally these things are unenforceable, then (laughs) it's going to be difficult. Yeah. So again, this is where we've seen kind of uh, a push for saying like, oh, we should be, uh, given the energy crunch coming out of Russia, we should be increasing energy uh, or fossil fuel production out of the US. And that's kind of like a very realistic approach. And that given it's in the US, we can do much stricter methane uh, emissions and capturing and things like that. And it's just all the evidence we have so far is it's very unrealistic thinking to think that that's actually going to happen. One more question beyond Carbon Collective, just because it came up, but I'm curious what you think about nuclear. Very pro. Very pro. Um, Yeah, we think that the anti-nuclear campaign 
again, we we would not be in nearly the level of climate mess. There are some really good books around this, and th- granted, there's there's problems with nuclear. Yeah, just like anything. There's problems with lithium and problems with batteries. There's there are we live in a hyper capitalistic individualistic world that is post-colonial. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be hard to only find things that are purely good right. in this. And that is just part of the pragmatism that we're in. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't work to make them as good as possible. How do we make those lithium mines mm-hmm. operate as sustainably as possible and set aside money for rep- for repair of those ecosystems? That is critical. And that that is where for us that we can engage with these companies and do so because they are much more likely to be willing and uh, to work with us than fossil fuel companies. So those are good examples of, you know, spending your engagement time wisely. Exactly. Exactly. That those are our friends and we can push our friends to do better. So when it comes to nuclear, the fossil fuel industry and let's give it its due, our civilization exists because of fossil fuels. Right. The fact yeah. that we are able to talk on this is all because of fossil fuels and the incredible stores of energy that they unlock. Absolutely miraculous of form of condensed energy miraculous like we we need to make sure that we give that its due um, and it is now time to switch Mm -hmm. and when it comes to nuclear we so often overlook the incredible harms that fossil fuels bring because it's just normalized Mm -hmm. and so the stat that is crazy to me is that for my lifetime to produce the amount of electricity that i will use as an upper middle class american it would result in 130,000 pounds of coal waste. Mm. That's a lot. <laughs> if I was to produce the same amount of electricity, because nuclear waste is often this big concern. The boogeyman. One of the biggest concerns. Yeah, the boogeyman of it. Get how many pounds of nuclear waste do you think that would be know, produced? I don't know, like 80% of a pound. Point zero, 0.8. It's my guess. Two pounds. Okay. Wasn't yeah, it could, fit in a, it could fit in a soda can. Yeah, wow. For that. And the amount of radioactivity that would be between those two pounds and 130,000 pounds of coal, the coal actually has more. Because when you're digging up coal, it's not just coal, there's a bunch of other like molecules in there, and they're radioactive. And that's just sitting in ponds that like flows into rivers and stuff like that. Like we can very easily bury this. Yeah, that's a big thing that I think people modestly overestimate sometimes is like if you actually look at the radioactivity of those two pounds like you wouldn't want it around you but it also wouldn't just like vaporize you instantly exactly exactly it's it's just it's such a smaller amount that we could very much deal with it so the closure of nuclear plants around the world and the the lack of investment in nuclear has been a huge success of the fossil fuel industry yeah and has really set back climate to a great degree so i've been very heartened to see some of the silver linings of what's happening in the Ukraine with Putin's right. invasion of like the German Green Party, which had been very anti-nuclear, saying, no, we need to re-embrace nuclear now. Because they were shutting down nuclear plants and opening up coal plants. Right. Some folks in Germany are talking about that. I, uh, it's a good example because I'm actually a German citizen, so I keep pretty close tabs on it. And they're still, unfortunately, proceeding with closing the nuclear plants. But you're right that this was the first time my mom's more tapped in than I am because that's where she's from. And she said it was the first time in 10 years that she actually saw like people on her social feed seriously reevaluating those choices. But yeah, it's just a, it's a crazy dynamic to say like, hey, we're going to scale, especially like domestic natural gas use, also scale coal use in the short term. And oh, by the way, we have like 
massive nuclear capacity that we're shuttering in parallel. Exactly. And it's, you know, there are problems with nuclear, like operating these plants is expensive. Starting new plants has been like logistically incredibly complicated. Right. And takes a long time. A long time. It is super expensive. So it's not like saying nuclear is this cure-all, but there's no cure-all. There's no panacea for climate. And this, I think, is you know, shown in like work by like Project Drawdown and groups like that of we need everything. The words that we need to be using in climate, we need to take from improv, which is yes and. <laughs> we can't be in no but. Yeah. There's certain places where we have to prioritize, like with engagement versus divestment. We have to say, okay, we have these resources. Where should we best spend them? But I think we often spend too long kind of like sinking into our uh, positions. I'd love to also just close with um, a little bit more about Carbon Collective. You know, A, would love to hear about traction because I know that the 401k offering is a recent development. The traction has been pretty cool. We, you know, we're a new investment company, which means that fundamentally people don't trust us. (laughs) People know who Vanguard is. It makes total sense. Like it, it, but they're like, you know, who the hell is Carbon Collective? (laughs) And so there's additional barriers and burdens for us to overcome to gain that trust. And it's been really cool to see as we're getting better and better at that. Mm. We think that we offer an experience uh, in some ways a lot unlike, not just in what our portfolios do, but the actual experience of investing with us, of being a member of Carbon Collective and what you get from that um, is pretty powerful. So we've been growing like more than 20% month over month on our robo basically since we've started. Awesome. Um, Yeah, and this is through this at the beginning of the year, this pretty big market downturn, which has been pretty cool with that. And then our 401k business, it's pretty wild. The, uh, <laughs> the level that there are not great options out there yeah, for folks. Definitely. And it's basically these uh, platform providers, they are investment advisors and they don't want to take on that liability sure. of offering anything but index-based portfolios. But that's what we do. It's in our DNA. Mm-hmm. So we're very comfortable doing that. So we get to partner with them. So you know these companies still get a great 401k experience, mm-hmm. but they then get access to portfolios that are much more in with their mission in addition to the standard ones because we never want to take away an option. We just want to add them. My final question would be, what's the call to action for someone that may be listening? Um, so like start somewhere, wherever that is, put a thousand bucks. It could be with carbon collective somewhere else. It doesn't matter, but start investing sustainably. Uh, number two is talk about it. Uh, this, again, this is how we counter that narrative and narrative is so important here in this and and talk about it, not just like, Hey, I feel better about the world, but also like, I feel smarter as an investor. That is a really important narrative here. Yeah. Give yourself some credit. Give yourself some credit. And then number three is don't settle for less. We, again, as individuals, in particular, those who don't like investing, we have just been told again and again that that's not how the investment world works. Mm -hmm. And the only way that that changes is when enough people say like, nope, it needs to work this way. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. Compelling. All right. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is super fun. Thanks for coming on. It was a great conversation. I think we covered (laughs) a very very good and wide range of topics so i'm always excited when that's the way the conversation goes same i look forward to being back soon awesome thanks zach thanks for tuning in and don't miss next week's episode by subscribing on spotify google apple or wherever else you listen to podcasts